Hey, thanks for tuning in to today's episode. When you're done, make sure to head to our website at unapologists.com where you can see all of our latest updates and our season lineup. And while you're there, head over to the support page so you can find out ways to keep the show going. Enjoy today's episode. Unapologist Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Unapologist Podcast, where the best PD happens in your backyard. Tonight, we have the opening pitch of the World Series, Christopher Polson. Listen, if I'm the opening pitch of the World Series, you, my friend, are Joe Carter, and this is 1993. Oh, and are you just saying that because I'm wearing the jersey right now? Because I, That's, that's like, what I'm doing. That is the greatest moment of all. Oh, I, I love this. I love this. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, and that spawned everything from the Smoking Joe's Bacon Deluxe at McDonald's to, oh, I mean, Joe Carter. He was mentioned as a thank you at my wedding. True story. You can ask my wife. It was, it went over. That's a good thank you. That's a good thank you. It is. Chris. How you doing, buddy? We are on the season three finale. Can you believe it? I I honestly can't believe it. Season three finale. It has been amazing we have learned so much we've become such better teachers um i I know i just think about my my practice and like how much better i have gotten simply because there are better people than me and they are kind enough to share that knowledge and i actually feel proud to say hey i actually teach now because i've learned a few things about how to do that through all this wonderful PD that we're doing and that the people we're talking to. And wow, season three was tremendous, wasn't it? Season three was huge. One of the really cool things that happened with season three is that people would message me or people would come up and say something to me and they'd say, hey, wow, like, and they'd mention something from an episode. And I'd be like, what are you talking? Oh, wait, our podcast. (laughs) And I was like, that's so cool. Um, And it's just so awesome that it's not just you and me. Like, I know you and I have just benefited so much from it but it's so awesome that it's it's there's a community that's benefiting from this amazing knowledge that's being shared yes and i I love it when i hear teachers being like i listened to one episode because i recognized the name and then i just had to listen to the rest of them because it it was great and that that just brings joy to my heart and soul because this is what it's all about it's it's about sharing and being generous and boy season season if you thought season three was good we're already lining up season four and like Like it's, it's wild. It's, it's so amazing. But, but before we get into season four, before we get Vito, into season, Chris, can I you can't believe, believe, can you believe? I don't even, I don't even, I don't even know. I don't even know how this happened. <laughs> I am just so thankful that it did. We have the treat for you tonight for this finale. Who we got Vito. Tonight, we have uh, an amazing guest, like just just an incredible guest. And if you, you haven't heard of him, then I, I don't know what to tell you. You've been sleeping for the past 35 years because we have Chris and I joke often about nominating each other for the best teacher in the world. Running gag that we have, as you know, on this show. But honest to goodness, the, the guest we have tonight should have won this at least six times already. He has been an educator for over 35 years and has absolutely transformed the language arts classroom. And I don't say that lightly. I do mean that. Uh, He has an ever-evolving body of work that helps teachers engage and empower even the most reluctant readers and writers 
in your room. Former president of the Secondary Reading Group for the International Literary Association, teacher, consultant, author of several professional development books, including Read Aside and Write Like This, co-wrote a book with Penny Kittle, 180 Days, and has another one coming out with her this fall for Essential Studies. Tonight in the show, we have Kelly Gallagher. Kelly, welcome to the show. Well, Vito, I'm already nervous. I'm not going to come anywhere near that introduction, but thank you to thanks to you and to Chris for, for having me on tonight. It is honestly our pleasure. We were so happy you were able to make it on and to chat with us because I think we have so much to learn from you tonight, and that is the honest-to-goodness truth, so thank you for being here. Um, but like all our guests... You know, we want we want to hear your story. So, can you tell us how did you get into teaching, and what led you to the trajectory you're on today? Well, if you looked at my family history, you would predict that I'd be a teacher. My mom was a fourth grade teacher for thirty something years. I have other teachers in my family, but I never uh, exited call. You know, entered college thinking I was going to be a teacher. Um, I I actually had the idea that I was going to be a paramedic. Uh, and I had a group of buddies when I was young that we would play basketball every Saturday. We would hang out and it was kind of a big neighborhood thing. And uh, I got to know a guy who was the varsity basketball coach at a high school, Greg Hoffman. And he said, hey, why don't you come coach my ninth grade basketball team? And, you know, I thought, OK, I'll give this a shot. And so I did. I spent a year you know, with these 12, 13 kids. And I absolutely loved that experiment, that experience so much that um, I completely pivoted. I went back to school. Uh, I didn't have an English degree. I had a journalism degree. So I finished that. And I just, I, I don't know, it, it wasn't really with the intention of coaching. Uh, but just that idea of teaching was really, really fun for me. And uh, the irony, of course, is that the coaching got me hired as I did coach basketball my first few years. But I came to realize, and I hope I don't step on any toes when I say this, but I came to realize that it was really, really hard to be an outstanding basketball coach and an outstanding English teacher at the same time. There just simply was not enough time. Uh, and so, three or four years into the beginning of my career, I, I made the choice, which was really hard because I miss those Friday nights on the bus, but I pivoted and went into teaching English full time. That's that's fascinating because we've had a few coaches on the show who talk about that balance and that's that's tough. So incredible. So keep keep going. So you decided that's it. I'm, I'm a teacher. I'm going to go on the teaching trajectory now. And you're dropped into what your first language arts classroom was it a high school classroom elementary? Yeah. Or you dropped? So I want to say that you know maybe this is a bias that I carry as an ELA teacher, but I think being an ELA teacher uh, with in 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 my system very large class sizes, so it was not uncommon for me to have 185 kids, right, and to read 185 essays. Is wow. not the same. I mean, it's a different level of demand than maybe being a content area teacher somewhere else. Uh, perhaps, perhaps not. Um, but yeah, I got hired at Magnolia High School in the Anaheim Union High School District, which is about an hour south of Los Angeles. 
Um, I was an English teacher, ninth grade English teacher, and I taught reading classes uh, for kids who were deemed below grade level in reading. Uh, and so I, I did that for a number of years. And then, you know, eventually I transitioned to straight English, you know, throughout my career. I, I was at Magnolia High School for 35 years, with the exception of one year. About seven or eight years ago, I took a leave of absence and I taught one year in uh, New York City. And so that was a really fascinating uh, detour. Uh, and I did that for a year. But the other 34 years at the same school, uh, in, in my district, there's eight high schools and eight junior highs or middle schools. It's, it's an unusual district because it's not K-12. It's only 7-12. Uh, and the school that I taught at was high poverty. Uh, uh, when I left, it was 83% uh, free breakfast and lunch. Wow. Wow. And, and just for comparison's sake, when you went to New York for the year, was it a similar demographic? Oh, well, no. I mean, it was, it was, it may have been some of the same levels of poverty, but it was a very different cultural experience. My students at Magnolia High School in, in Los Angeles area come from all over the world. Uh, it's primarily Latino, but they come from all over the world. Uh, there's, I forgot how many languages are spoken on that campus. Uh, my class in New York City, which was in Harlem, uh, was primarily uh, African-American or black students. So, uh, and, you know, East Coast culture and West Coast culture, being uh, a white male in a predominantly black school uh, was incredibly uh, humbling and incredibly uh, taught me a lot, opened my eyes to a lot of things. Uh, like what? Well, what are some things that you just blew it open for you? Well, you know, when I was in Anaheim, because I'd been there for so long, I had a kind of established a reputation, I think a good reputation, right? And so I had, there was goodwill walking in my door. But when I went to New York, and this is not a criticism of my students in New York, but it was, hey, prove it, prove it to me. Who are you? Right. Mm -hmm. And so the kids, I love the kids. I ended up loving them, you know, but here's a guy from, you know, uh, I grew up in Huntington Beach, California. Right. And here I am uh, in, you know, New York. I went there because one of the things that I wanted to see firsthand was a charter school. I taught at the Harlem Village Academies mm -hmm. and I wanted to see firsthand what it was like in a um, charter school. And uh, what did what did you find? What was uh, what, 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 like in terms of a charter school? Was what, what did you find? Oh, this this works or this? Because uh, I know charter schools are, are a big thing in the U.S. Well, I was really uh, really drawn to the to the mission of the school. Um, it, it it's a charter school, but it was a lottery to get in. Mm -hmm. It had all the demographics that any traditional public high school would have. Also. You know, charter schools have, have their own culture that's a little bit different than the public schools that I came from um, as well. You know, the mission of that school was, was really uh, to take underrepresented kids and adequately prepare them so that they would move into, you know, secondary education, up into university work. Um, and I, I was just fascinated. Uh, I, I'd had the experience with low-income kids uh, but I said, as I said, culturally, it was very different. Um, the students were very different and, and 
the the system in in New York is very different. I'll give you one example. Uh, and this may be not just a charter school thing in New York City, but it's very, very, very test heavy. Um, and often, I think the tests that they're preparing kids to take um, narrow uh, what I would consider good instruction. So there's there's a misalignment. Of course, this is true almost anywhere you go in standardized testing. But there's a misalignment between what's best in developing young readers and writers and the tests that teachers are asked to teach towards and teachers will be evaluated on on how well their students perform on those tests. So let's let's hit on that point there, developing readers and writers, because this is where, you know, you have really pushed the envelope and have opened things up. At what point in your own teaching career did you see, oh my goodness, this, what we're doing now doesn't work? Or did you always have that mind going into it? Well, when you first start, you don't know what you don't know. But um, there was always an unease from me. Um, what, you know, it was very early in my career that I kind of came to the idea, and it's not a revolutionary idea, that there are people very far away from my classroom who are making decisions that are not in the best interest of my kids. Um, they don't know my third period kids. They don't know that my third period is different than my second period. And so, you know, this sort of one size fits all approach to curriculum and testing creates standardized kids and standardized thinking. And so I, I, I think I had a pretty good inkling fairly early. You know, I think I, when I was teaching one of those early reading classes, you know, and I spent a lot of time preparing kids for the kinds of questions they would encounter on that test. What I should have been doing is spending a lot more time motivating them to, to read and read and read because there is an undeniable relationship between time spent reading and performance on standardized reading tests. Hmm. Uh, and I think early in my career, like a lot of young teachers, my focus was on test prep and not on developing lifelong readers and writers. And this has been a theme that's gone throughout my career, right? I think it's one of the biggest issues facing all schools today is that there is a big difference between compliant reading and writing and engaged reading and writing. And I think schools are very heavy on compliant and not uh, attentive, attentive enough uh, to, you know, engagement. And I think that's absolutely huge, too, because that goes into just about every discipline, not just reading and writing. But what are we doing? Are we are we making people do stuff or are we actually thinking about the concept of engagement? Which is neat because we had uh, another language arts teacher, Brett Walker, who talked about that moving towards authentic audiences for the writing. <laughs> and, and and so you, you recognize that early on and and so what did you do then like what was what was your what was your work around what what did you said okay i got to get you reading so let me throw some books at you or well sure i mean it, it's a long evolution over my career but essentially and this is true with readers and writers and penny and i penny kittle my co-author and i discussed this in 180 days that there are really four things that make kids better readers and writers volume choice modeling and feedback. And so at various stages of my career, I was better at some of those than others, probably all the way through my career. But if you start through the lens of volume, 
if you really think, because I've, you know, I've sat in a lot of faculty meetings where we talk about everything, but whether our kids have enough interesting books to read or not. And I, I recognized very early that the reading diet is out of balance in high school and, and middle school. Uh, the writing diet is out of balance in high school and middle school, probably elementary school as well. Um, on the reading side, you know, if you think about somebody like Nancy Atwell, who was named literally teacher of, uh, of the year in the world. Yeah, uh, she, she, won a, she was the first one to win it, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah, the Global Teacher Prize. She won a million dollars. That doesn't do anything to your ego. Wake up, I'm the best teacher in the world, right? <laughs> I, I, I think I'd have trouble trying to go to work, trying to, <laughs> trying to live up to that every single day. But, you know, Nancy Atwell says there's three kinds of books in the world, right? There are challenge books, there are just right books, and there are vacation books. And kids should be reading all three. And they should be reading all three in school. The problem is when I survey my seniors, 12th graders, for, the, for those in, in Canada, my 12th grade students, you know, I surveyed them year after year after year and uh, anonymously at the beginning of the year. And one thing I always asked them was, uh, you know, how many of you have fake read your way to the 12th grade? And year after year was over 90%. So I think the biggest problem, especially in an age of distraction addiction, is that kids are not doing the volume of reading that's foundational for them to become, you know, super literate. Um, and so if you really, if volume becomes a lens on how to plan your year, everything changes from a traditional model. You have to surround kids with books they want to read. You have to give them time to read the books inside a class and outside a class. You have to shoulder up and confer with young readers on a regular basis. So not as a gotcha thing, but as a, an assessment of who's really reading and who's not. And so if the lens really becomes volume first, the structure of the day, the structure of the year, uh, the way we approach curriculum. And so that's what Penny and I wrote about in 180 days is if our kids really are not reading and writing, how do we, uh, we taught a year together, 180 mm -hmm. days and taught ninth grade classes together across the continent. Uh, so when my kids read Romeo and Juliet, her kids read Romeo and Juliet, and we, we, we talked together and wrote together. Um, and by the way, that is a huge uh, strategy to raise engagement is in a digital age is that you connect your kids outside with kids who are, you know, your kids inside your classroom with kids who are outside your classroom. And it doesn't have to be across the continent. It could be across the hallway, but when classroom A is writing to classroom B and reading with classroom B, uh, level of engagement really, really spikes. Oh, yeah, I can absolutely see that because not only does that mean there's accountability because now students are reading my work, but also, oh my goodness, other students are reading my work. So it's a real audience, not just my teacher anymore. And ah, that, that's, I love that. And, and I love how you mentioned the whole fake reading your way through school because one of the big things that had changed around my practice is I was teaching grade eight and I was in the library and a grade 12 student, we were just chatting and he said, oh, you're getting, trying to get your kids to read some books. Yeah, no one reads, sir. Like, I mean, we just spark note our way and wait for conversations in class to happen. And that's how we get through it. And he was very honest with me. 
and rather than say, oh, you should be doing this, I would no, that's legitimately what's happening. So let's let's take note. So Mar Marianne Wolf is a researcher. She wrote a book called Reader Come Home, in which she discusses how the reading brain develops in human beings. And what Marianne Wolf says is we need to be creating biliterate readers. What that means is, you know, kids are doing a lot of reading. It's a lot of click and go flash kind of reading. And, and that's important that they learn how to do that well, because that's a new kind of reading that's never been around in the history of humankind. But what's lost is the ability to hold on to your thinking over 300 pages. And what Marianne Wolf argues developmentally, that especially in adolescence, when brain uh, growth is so, it's the, fa it's the fastest it's ever going to be in your entire life, right? It kind of solidifies in your early 20s. What she says is you have to you have to gain that attention span. You have to gain that critical thinking while you are in that developmental stage. This is why it's easier to learn a second language when you're really young, right? Mm -hmm. You learn it when you're in that developmental stage. And what Marion Wolf says is if kids don't learn how to do that, they lose the ability to think critically forever. It's a use it or lose it thing. And so you know, trying to get, we, you know, and I've been in a lot of schools and a lot of school systems where the emphasis is really just reading passages, you know, close, you know, close reading, which is, it has a place in the curriculum. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. But if kids are not holding on to their thinking over 300 pages in an age where your, where your student was completely honest, they are not reading. Right. Then right. that, that makes us reevaluate. What are we asking them to read? You know, I can't say to a class, Hey, Thanks for being honest to me that most of you haven't read a book in four or five years. So let's start with George Orwell's 1984. <laughs> that's, that's teaching stuff, not teaching kids. Oh, big vibe right there. Right. Oh. And so oh. we have to be, and this is the word that kept coming up between Penny and me when we were writing the book. And that is we have to be responsive to the kids who are in that class. And that's another one to me that just – that's something that you can apply anywhere because even if you're teaching the same course, your first block isn't going to be the same as your second block. Your third block isn't going to be the same as your fourth block. So it's all about the people who are in the room with you and what their needs are, what they need from you as the teacher. So I really, really, really like that. Oh, my goodness. Um So many, so many big points to pull from that. Um, But let's uh... – let's keep the conversation going because you had brought up 180 days a few times uh, with Chikorot Penny Kittle there. And really 180 days is the summation. I think of both of your teaching philosophies combined, that kind of blueprint of what you believe and how to structure and how to balance it. But you also have um, another book coming out in October. So being a master of your craft, you, you are always striving to learn more. So what, what are some of the new enlightenments you've added, modified, or tweaked since the publication of that book? I love that question. The best teachers I've ever met are reflective, right? You know, if a lesson doesn't work or a unit doesn't fly, it doesn't mean abandon. It means rethink. It might mean abandon eventually, but it means rethink. And so Penny and I were pretty happy with our year, 180 days. But when we look back at it, um, we asked ourselves, what did we get right and what did we get wrong? And I would say, I'll give you one big example. In our, in our 
year together, 180 days, we use poetry a lot. Our kids read a lot of poems, but we use poetry as a launching pad for kids to share their thinking in their notebooks. It's not read the poem and answer the four questions. It's read the poem, take a word, a line, a phrase. What are you thinking? We're trying to get kids to embrace the blank page, right? Because mm-hmm. so, one of the problems, one of the one of the things that drove us to write the new book is that Penny left high school and now she's teaching first year writing at the university. And she's in her third semester of doing that now. And she has got she has received wave after wave after wave of kids who got A's and B's in high school, who were admitted to the university. But when they get to college, they think writing is formulaic. And they can't read a 300-page book because they've been spark noting and faking it, right? Almost all reading in college is independent reading. So if kids do not have independent reading practice, if they're just faking it, they're just going to spark notes, uh, that's highly, highly problematic. So we, we, we were happy with the way we use poetry to launch writing. But when we finished the year we realized that maybe the largest shortcoming of that book is that although our kids read a lot of poems, we actually did not have a standalone poetry unit. And we believe that that is foundational in every single ELA classroom. The problem is kids are afraid of poetry. The problem is many teachers are afraid to teach poetry. Um, And so we went back our next year and we taught a unit on poetry that we felt was missing in 180 days. See, I think it's amazing that, you know, this book, which is, you know, really loved by a lot of people, a lot of educators, even you yourself, you can reflect on it and say, you know what, here's where we missed the mark. So the next time we do it, we updated it. And I, I love that. I think that's a great example of leadership. A lot of um, great po- threads to pull from that. And and I was trying to decide where, where to go from there. Because the fact is you had poetry throughout, which is something I think very few teachers are afraid to do, right? Um, or, or willing to do. A lot of them are afraid to even introduce poetry unless it's something very well-read, rehearsed, and they know it back and forth and they can answer questions about it, uh, but to jump in. So you, you've added an entire unit um, with that. And does it take the place of anything else that you're doing is, is my big question here. Yes. So if something goes in, something has to come out, right? And so these are the decisions, but these are the trades that we, you know, the the book that we've written talks about four essential studies that we believe that are either, it's time to revise them or to think about them in a different way. Uh, So those four studies are essay writing. What's become the high school essay is not the kind of essays real writers write in the real world. And so we, we're, we're asking teachers to rethink the teaching of the high school essay. We're, uh, a second um, area of study is book clubs, that we balance the reading diet by having kids participate in book clubs. 
the third level is, or the third unit of study is digital composition. That if you are writing an essay, some of the decisions that you're making are very similar to the decisions you would make if you were to make a one or two minute movie, right? And kids live in a digital world. Much of the composition should be done in a, in, in digital work. Uh, it also, I think the creation of digital work helps kids to understand how they're being manipulated by digital things that they see in the real world. And then the uh, study, the area of study of poetry. Um, and we take uh, the reader through how we approach poetry, which is very different than was taught to us, or maybe very different than is seen in a lot of traditional classrooms. In a lot of traditional classrooms, poetry, you know, Billy Collins has a poem called Introduction to Poetry, where he laments the idea that what we do as English teachers is we tie poems to chairs and torture confessions out of them. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> and so we, we believe there is a place for analysis. We, we believe the ability to analyze a poem is really important, but we also believe it's way overemphasized. Um, and if you think about, you know, back in the day when I was in college, Bloom's Taxonomy, right? In 2001, a group of psychologists, uh, curriculum theorists, researchers, uh, testing uh, and assessment specialists, they went back in 2001 and they revised Bloom's Taxonomy and analysis is no longer the top rung of Bloom's taxonomy. The top rung of Blue's, Bloom's taxonomy is now creation. And if we're having kids write essays, uh, reading essays and studying essays and writing essays, we should be having kids reading poems, studying poems and writing poems, right? And, and, and or raps or songs or, you know, whatever gets them into the rhythm and play of language. Uh, and so, we did a little bit of using writing, as, or a lot of using uh, poetry to spur writing in 180 days. But in this book, we talk about what, what a four-week or five or six-week study would look like in poetry. Okay, that, that's incredible. That's incredible. I mean, I, I found myself very fortunate when it came to poetry because my wife's godmother is an international haiku poet and also a language arts teacher, a retired language arts teacher. So that was always her emphasis. So I had a good foundation going in, but I, I think that's incredible that you, you lay that out. And f for you, does the, the poetry diet also, is it varied? Is it, are you looking at classic pieces of poetry or are we, are we looking at? Well, no, yeah. Yeah. I mean, modern this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity to bring in all voices, all cultures, you know, uh, gender, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's an, it's an incredible opportunity to bring in poems that, um, are relevant today. We do mix in, um, some classic stuff, but we lean pretty hard towards contemporary poets, poets who are out there right now speaking right now. And we balance between page poems and stage poems. So, you know, poems that are written on the page, but we also do a lot of spoken word poetry, which is there's a lot of it on YouTube. And so we'll bring in performances of poems. We want kids to, to, to perform their own poems or make movies around their own poems. Uh, and so um, 
trying to build that engagement piece through poetry. I can say, unlike you, I was not fortunate in my poetry background, at least in high school, because for me in high school, poetry was an exercise, it was an extraction exercise in which I had to try to find the answer that the teacher was secretly hiding behind her back from us. And it was sort of a please the teacher thing, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I wrote a book years ago called Deeper Reading in which I share in that book a poem called Billiards by Walker Gibson. And I used that poem in my class for years. And then when I went to put it in the book, they had to find the poet who was an elderly gentleman living in the Southern part of the United States. And they finally found him. And the editor said, hey, uh, we'd like permission to, Kelly would like permission to share this in his book. Um, and the poet said, why is that? And, and, and my editor said, well, he loves how your poem is a metaphor for the viciousness of blah, 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 right? And kind of the way I always taught the poem, right? And the poet said, oh, I never thought about that. So, I mean, there's a ballpark of right and there's a ballpark of wrong when it comes to looking at what a poem might be. But, um, you know, if we're gonna analyze it, if we're gonna do a lot of analysis, we do it so that kids can take some of those skills and try them in their own poem. I really like the idea that you're using the analysis so that the students can improve on their own work. It's not just about what that particular poem's saying. And I, I love that story too, just because I've known a few writers in my life, some of them, you know, 40 year career writers who will have readers come up and be like, oh, yeah, it was brilliant, the metaphor and illusion you wrote into this short story. And they're like, I didn't know I did that. I just yeah. wrote it and put it out there. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, how, how do you like, how do your students respond to the the actual creation of poetry? Because I always felt that that was, that was a, actually a way to engage some of my more reluctant students, especially uh, I'm going to pick on them, the males in my class and the young boys, uh, grade eight, right? They would love to write poetry. That was their thing. How, how did it work for your students? Well, the bigger issue, whether it's poetry or prose, is I think students need a place, a safe place to write, where they write way more than the teacher will read. They write way more than the teacher will grade. Uh, they will determine out of their notebooks which piece or pieces they will allow the teacher to look at. So I think there's a safety. I think we have to build in the problem is, you know, we're losing creativity with kids, right? So we have to be able to, to allow for experimentation. We have to have space to allow, allow for failure. We have to have space to allow kids to try something and abandon it. I mean, it's funny because we're trying to practice what we preach. And so when we were writing the chapter, my co-author, Penny Kittle, challenged me to write a poem. And so um, in the writing of that chapter, I, I, I wrote a poem, but it took me several drafts and several days. And what I did is I captured everything it taught me as a teacher. What, having done it myself, what are the pitfalls that I must now look for when I go into the classroom? And that's, that's a big part of, of that chapter, right? So we have to give kids, and, and a lot of it's, you know, mentor texts, you know, what did this, how did this poet do it? How did this poet do it? Right. Do you want to do it by yourself? You want to do a spoken word poem with a partner? You know, that kind of stuff. Oh, amazing. Amazing. Now, one thing uh, I can't remember where you said this, but one of the most effective practices you've ever had 
as a teacher for your own growth was to be self-reflective, take five minutes at the end of every day and, and to self-reflect. And so over the course of uh, your career, what, what, what do you think what's been the classroom practice of yours that had the most growing pains involved with its eventual success as you reflect on that? Yeah, my first, uh, my first few years of teaching, I, I did what you said literally. Like at the end of each day, I'd have it written down what I did. At the end of each day, I'd write a little reflection because you think you're going to remember the next year how that lesson on that short story went, but you're not. You're not going to remember that. So it was that daily reflection that was super, super helpful uh, to me. I think the most growing pains, you know, the practice that produced the most growing pains for me, I mean, it's so hard to narrow that down to one or two. I would say, first of all, moving beyond the four by four approach in my classroom, which is, you know, uh, you look at the curriculum guide, the first quarter you're supposed to read, you know, Animal Farm, the second quarter you're supposed to read Romeo and Juliet, and you follow the district's pacing guide. And first quarter, while you're doing that, you're also supposed to teach, you know, the argument essay, the narrative essay, this essay, that essay. And what happens is you get to the end of the year and you, and you've, taught four big papers and the kids have fake read four big books. And what I've come to believe, of course, is that's not enough volume on either side of that. So for me, you know, the, the biggest practice move was getting out from behind the lectern, getting out from behind my desk and during reading and writing time uh, to be a coach, not a critic, but a coach in that classroom while kids are in the creative phase or while kids are actually reading. Um, I also think it took me a number of years and I was deeply influenced by educator Sheridan Blau, who wrote a book called The Literature Workshop. Sheridan was, was a National Writing Project director in Santa Barbara, California. He's now at Columbia University. But Sheridan taught me the importance of confusion, that confusion is normal, that confusion is necessary, that we covet confusion because confusion is the place where learning happens. And so when I was in school, we were taught to hide our confusion from the teacher. Go home and read chapter one. The quiz will be tomorrow. You show up. If you don't know the answer, you try to fake it, try to get half credit. What I want my kids to know is that confusion is normal, it's necessary, that there's opportunity here. And we talk a lot about what readers and writers do when they're confused. I want um, to turn over much of that decision-making to the kids. And I think the reason they get to Penny's first year college class and they're unprepared is because the teacher has done too much of the decision-making. The teacher has done too much of the wrestling for them, that there's an unhealthy codependence between young readers and writers and the teacher. And I think it's very important that the kids learn to wrestle on their own with some guidance and some encouragement from the teachers, which is why I'm not a fan of formulaic writing. We have to give kids choice and we have to let them kind of, kind of fly a little bit. Let them fly, big vibrate there. Yes, I absolutely love that. So I don't know if you've ever heard the the butterfly metaphor, but you know, 
if you've ever seen a butterfly come out of the an, an, uh, out of the cocoon, it's a very arduous process, right? It's very arduous, right? And sometimes they don't survive. Uh, but so they did this experiment where they cut the cocoon so that the butterfly could come out immediately. And what they found was that the butterfly was more likely to die if you cut the cocoon because its wings were not strengthened by the wrestle to get out of the cocoon. And, and as a teacher, I think there's a metaphor there. If I do too much for the kids, their wings are not strong enough. And when they get to the university they, or the job, they have a hard time with that. And so that's kind of a big idea of the book that we've written. And the other big idea really, and it comes down to this, right, is who is making the decisions in the classroom? Who is making the decisions? And we want, we want to turn over as much of the decision-making to kids uh, as we can. Well, I think that goes into, you know, what are we doing? Are we filling cups with water, that water being knowledge, or are we facilitating a learning experience? I mean, we already have that big vibrate there. Don't cut the cocoon. Um, and, and I think, I think, there's a safety net to, to allowing for the struggles uh, at the younger ages so that when those struggles, it's not like an absolutely life-changing event because they've already been able to grow through it. Yeah, there's an old proverb and I, I'm paraphrasing it, but it's something like um, you do not prepare the road for the child. You prepare the child for the road, right? And so, you know, we've all had that parent Good vibes. We've all had that parent who calls us and says, why am I kid not getting an A? Right. It should be the kid who's coming to you and having that discussion. But when parent, we know that helicopter parenting is really bad for kids. What I want to suggest and what my friend and co-author Penny Kittle want to suggest, we actually wrote an article on this in educational leadership called the curse of helicopter teaching. Right. And this is, I think, something teachers need to ask themselves. Am I doing too much? How much is too much? How much is not enough? This is where the art of teaching comes into play. Right. And this idea, well, my kids can't do it if I don't give them a formula or my kids can't do it. It's just not true. Right. They, you might have to walk them into it. You may have to scaffold it and, and, and model for them. But um I, I think this sort of let's not harm our kids under any circumstances has created kids who, um, you know, I think you talk to any teacher still in the classroom, it's the most stressed out adolescence I've ever seen. The more mental health issues, the more uh, self-harm issues, right? And a lot of this, uh, you know, if there's a book called, the, and, and I know much of this is a Canadian audience, but there's a book called uh, The Coddling of the American Mind by two college professors in which they discuss what they're seeing. Uh, and so what happens is if you remove all obstacles from kids when they're young, then they become old and older and they don't know how to deal with obstacles, right? You have to learn the obstacles early, how to deal with them early. Recently, it was uh, Penny Kittle. Uh, she was joining our board's PD uh, session, and she had mentioned that one of the most recent acceptance essays to Harvard didn't have any punctuation in it. Like the, the 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 student who wrote that had to consciously make that decision. And there are examples of good writing without punctuation if you do it right and you emulate who, who's doing it. So I, uh, you know, there, there's there is no formula for writing. 
Well, now you've opened the the correctness can of worms, but uh -oh. you're, you're, no, no, you're absolutely right. And, and, or, you know, these rules that have been calcified forever, you know, don't apply in the real world. I mean, writer, really great writers use intentional fragments, really great writers do intentional run-ons, right? And so the problem, of course, is when kids unintentionally use fragments and run-ons, but that's where voice comes from, right? That's where craft comes from is, is punctuation is not just quote unquote, somebody's correctness. Punctuation creates meaning to what you're doing, right? And so I think that's part of the mentor tech study in raising riders. And depending on which writer you talk to, they'll even have a different philosophy. I, I know one, uh, multiple Hugo award-winning editors, she said, you know, the, the, the purpose of punctuation is to control your reader. Uh, but if you can find another way to do it uh, through your own moves, uh, go for it. Um, How do you want the reader to hear what you've written? That's an author decision. And I think what we're getting at here is how, how do you give your students voice? Voice is really important. The best essays have voice, you know, so I might give a kid an essay that has really strong voice in it and just say, okay, highlight highlight where you hear this person, where you, where you get a sense of who this person is, right? And just having kids look at that and look at that. Now, now let's imitate. Maybe start at the sentence or paragraph level and do some imitation, right? Um, the other idea is, you know, maybe for really reluctant writers is you, you have them dictate first. Maybe they, you know, there's lots of apps that'll transcribe what you're saying, right? You tell the story first. Now go back. Now you have a lot of words on the page and we'll play with it from there. The other idea, of course, that's really important for teachers to think about is that all first draft writing is crappy too, right? And so we want to we wanna have volume. We want writing and writing and writing and writing. And then eventually from all of that bad writing, we're going to pick something and, you know, work on polishing it, work on making it better. But that's where the whole choice thing comes into play. I try really hard not to read the same essay over and over and over. Even if it's a literary analysis essay, my question might be, what's worth analyzing? Our Tom Newkirk said the best literary analysis, and if you don't know Tom Newkirk, he's the author of many great books. He's one of my favorite educators. Tom Newkirk said literary analysis should be small. It should not be identify the central theme, blah, blah, blah. It should be zoom in on a moment that's incredibly important it should sound like gossip. Why do you think this character said that? Or why do you think this character did that? But the best literary analysis is, is picking a small moment and really zooming in on it. I think that was in Minds Made for Stories. Thought, it probably that was. was. Yeah, yeah, that was fantastic. That was phenomenal. Yeah. So at this point, you, you've been around for over 35 years and have been critical in changing the landscape of a language arts classroom in both form and function. What are you most proud of in your work that you see in classrooms today? Oh, you know, it, it's always really, uh, always really makes me happy when somebody says we redesigned our curriculum. We've, it, we've, we've now have classroom libraries. We now have book clubs going on that kids really are reading. And I, it really makes me happy when I see a lot more choice in the curriculum with writing. I'll give you one example. Uh, I, I don't know if it's true in Canada, but in the United States, there's sort of this bias 
that as kids climb the K-12 ladder, the, the closer they get to 12th grade, uh, the less important narrative writing is. And the more important is expository and you know literary analysis. And I just completely disagree with that. Again, Tom Newkirk talks about this, right? To, to see kids, and I think it was Don Graves who said to kids, you have stories to tell that only you can tell. I couldn't love that anymore. That's perfect. Right. And so when I'm in a classroom and kids' voices are heard in their writing, I think that's one of the things that makes me most proud. I, I, I absolutely love that because I think with this idea of narrative, there is so much richness to be gained and learned about not just what you're, well, not just what kids are reading, but about the person that they are. Because when you jump into that story, you have a, a genuine experience. And if that gets lost, this whole way of knowing goes out with it. So I just love that you say that. So I'll, I'll say two things to that. Another about narrative. When a kid sits next to me in class and says, Mr. Gallagher, will you help me with this piece? And this is the piece she has selected and given me permission to read. And I sit shoulder to shoulder with her and she's written something about the day she came home from school and her mother disappeared because she had been caught by immigration and deported. And now she's the head of the household. When that kid shares that essay with me, there's something that happens between the two of us that is uh, hard to explain. It's, it's much deeper and much richer than simply helping a kid figure out where the commas go. Uh, and there's something that happens to her when she is given the voice to tell a story that only she can tell. So that's the first thing I, I would want to say. That's so powerful, though. You know, there, there, there you, when someone, it, it's, there's a vulnerability and a powerful uh, aspect of that narrative approach. And the other reason I start with narrative is not only because that's the one that has been ignored the most. And when I say ignored, I mean fiction and nonfiction. I mean story. When was the last time in 12th grade kids wrote fiction? I think it's really important to, to develop uh, their, their creativity. But I want to say this as well, that when I teach kids at the very beginning of the year to write really good narratives, I actually think writing a really good narrative is much harder than writing a central theme essay of a novel. And what I want to say is that when I teach a kid to write really good narratives, that the skills that you learn in writing that narrative, you know, earlier we talked about voice or sensory detail or how to use dialogue. Those skills that you learn in narrative are not genre specific. Those are skills you will, you know, you learn how to use voice. You learn how to use voice in a, a narrative. You're going to use voice in your argument. You're going to have voice in that college application essay. That the skills are not genre limiting, but that they span genres but I start with narrative because that's what connects with kids who have come to believe that the only reason you write in school is to read chapter four, extract the four answers that the teacher's looking for and spit it out on a paper. That, that, that it, there's no engagement there at all. And so giving kids that, uh, that sort of foundation and learning a lot of skills in 
narrative that they're going to transfer across other discourses. So where, where do you th think we have a long ways to go then still? Do you think it's in the narrative, pushing the narrative more and um, to balance that out with the expository? Yes, and I would say this, you know, I think um, the other idea is it's not like you say, okay, I've taught narrative and now we're done. Now it's time for argument. What happens in the real world is we blend discourses. So the best arguments are wrapped around story. So, you know, this happened to my uncle. Let me tell you about it. That's why you should vote for this law is an argument that's much more compelling than an essay that's simply, here's a law you should vote for and here are three reasons. So we blend discourses. Uh, everything's multi-genre. Every, Tom Newkirk argues everything's a story. An editorial is a story. It has an arc to it. So it's not like we leave it behind. So I think, I think teachers, some teachers, you know, might benefit from giving more thought to blending genres or, or bringing, you know, multi-genre approach. I, I think uh, if you're really comfortable in your skin, you might have uh, kids decide everything that they're going to write. I've seen classes, you know, where kids know they have to have X amount of pieces at the end of the year. But one size fits all instruction is very problematic when you have 30 kids, right, in the room. Hey, kids, you know, and I've done this. I'm not criticizing anybody else. But, hey, today is, okay, we're going to brainstorm. And tomorrow we're going to pre-write. And on Wednesday, right? But you know what? That's not how writers create. We're not lockstep, right? It, 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 it's different for different kids. The creative process is different. The other thing I would say is really weaving much more choice into the reading side of things uh, and relinquishing sort of the teacher's overwhelming desire to, to overanalyze the reading. Um, if I say to you, read chapter five and you come to class the next day and I've given you, I give you four questions, the moment I hand you those four questions, I've now determined what you're going to think and what you're not going to think. I'm framing your thinking. And Penny and I, we do not argue that you shouldn't ask questions, but what we argue is that kids should present their own thinking first. So you read chapter five, what are you thinking? Take out a blank piece of paper. Do not be afraid of the blank page. Embrace the blank page. And let's Embrace the blank minutes. page. Let's let's take ten minutes and tell me what you're thinking first. And this is something I wish I would have had in high school. I, you know, I'm a very avid reader now, but in high school, and I love my English teachers, but they they killed my love of reading. I remember grade eleven, we were doing a Handmaid's Tale, and you know, I, I read the book in a weekend. I came back and chapter quiz and i couldn't identify the hem of the color of a dress and i was like what does this have to do with anything and i failed the quiz and i'm like well this is stupid i'm not paying attention anymore <laughs> like well uh, and, and, and the books i did like reading the fantasy the sci-fi those weren't real books uh they didn't belong in a classroom so i never felt i was really reading so uh, you know, i i, I grew know. up in huntington beach california and i had a 10th grade teacher hand me this book and it said this movie's coming out you want to read it before the movie comes out it was a book called jaws right and I absolutely loved it because I was in the water a lot and, you know, it, it, it gripped me. 
I think you're, you're onto something important, Vito, and that is this idea that if if you're listening to this and your kids are disengaged as readers and writers, I think the first step is is to think about how did you become engaged as a reader? How did you become engaged as a writer? You became an English teacher. You must love reading and writing. How did that happen? And, and I would bet it didn't happen through a, a series of quizzes and packet work and things like that. And the other thing that you said, Vito, that was really interesting was that you loved your teachers, but they made you hate reading. Mm-hmm. You know, that that doesn't work for me, right? You know, I can be that guy. I can go in and tell jokes and all that. There's a book that came out 30, 35 years ago called The Shopping Mall High School. And they they make this metaphor in there that schools have become like shopping malls, right? Some kids only shop in the high-end stores. Some kids only shop in the low-end stores. Teachers are like salespersons. Come into my program or my athletic thing. Don't go there. But they said, you know, Within about two or three days of the beginning of the school year, the teach- the kids already figure out what classes they're going to have to work hard in. And they already figure out, well, I can get by. This guy's funny. This guy's going to tell a joke. He's going to give me this quiz. There's sort of this appearance of, of uh, an unspoken pact that you perform at this certain thing over the course of the year, but at what cost? At the end of the year, you don't like to read, you don't like to write. Uh, that, uh, to me, that's malpractice. And I don't want to. I don't want to suggest for a moment that I'm completely. I wave a magic wand, and all my kids love to read and write after they leave me. But I do think I get a lot more kids turned on to reading and writing uh, than they get in a lot of other places. And again, it comes back to volume choice, modeling, feedback. At, at this point, in your opinion, then, what should teachers be unapologetic about in their practice? Well, I touched on it earlier, you know, this idea that no one knows your students like you do. All teachers know you're, there's certain fights worth fighting. There's certain fights you got to let go. To me, it's do my kids have enough interesting things to read? in the classroom and enough interesting things to read to take home to read. If the answer's no, then I don't think you should, I don't think you should be unapologetic about fighting that fight and trying to get more books that connect with kids. Um, I don't think you should also be unapologetic about, you know, this idea of responsiveness that we've talked a lot about Uh, that when the pandemic hit, I was teaching 12th grade. And I decided it was my last year in the classroom prior to the year. I was having such a great time, right? And then boom, like everybody else, the rug was pulled out, never saw my kids in person again. But we pivoted, my school district pivoted to the pandemic. We studied it in science. We studied it in math. We wrote about it in English. We studied, you know, we studied it, you know, in history that sometimes tomorrow's lesson plan is is taken out because things happen in the world. And I want my, you know, here in, here in the United States, we had, you know, a terrible trouble with mass shootings. 
So I, I stopped what we were doing. We did a whole three week unit on mass shooting, right? That I am creating stuff that is connecting to my kids and uh, people are, aren't going to like that. You, you're deviating from the prescribed curriculum. Well, the prescribed curriculum was made for people who don't know my third period. And uh, this is happening in the world right now. You know, in the United States, when the Capitol riot happened, we stopped and pivoted towards that. I think that's such a, a good piece of advice, too, how you said it. Um, sometimes t- tomorrow's lesson plan needs to be halted because of the the events of today. And I think that that's something that teachers of all ranges of their career really need to hear because you get stuck in that treadmill of, well, I have to do curriculum objective 3.A today. And if I don't get that done, then when am I going to get that done? When really we need to prepare young people to exist within a world that is ever changing and one that you can't put under a jar. Exactly, Chris. And I would say this, I'm even a little harsher on this one. You could teach every standard your system wants you to. It will not matter unless your kids read and write a whole lot more. And it will not matter unless they're engaged in that reading and writing. So there's a difference between covering and engaging. I focus on creating deeper engaged reading and deeper engaged writing. And what happens is the standards end up getting covered. And with that, I think we've come to the Paulson points. What... Uh, conversation we've had with Kelly Gallagher tonight and I know usually you expect from me the big vibes and the Polson points and all that stuff uh, but this was really one that I just was taking notes and I was learning myself so my friends the Polson points tonight are we looking for compliance or are we looking for engagement make better readers and writers in four steps volume choice modeling and feedback Change the lens, change the structure. In the digital age, my friends, we have a literal world of opportunity for engagement outside of the classroom. Don't teach stuff, teach kids. Ask yourself, how did I become engaged in reading and writing? Remember that everything's multi-genre. Again, ask yourselves, who's making the decisions in the classroom about what we're reading, about what we're writing about? Be mindful that we're not doing too much as the educator. And really, really, really let your students know that confusion is normal and necessary and there's actually opportunity in it. Give kids the opportunity to read and write. Educators, being reflective is key to educator growth. And I think the biggest pulse and point of the night, embrace the blank page. And educators, don't forget to be unapologetic about making sure there's enough interesting things to read in the classroom and to take home and fighting the fight to get books that connect with kids and connecting with kids as teachers. Kelly Gallagher, thank you so much for coming on the show. And please make sure to check out Four Essential Studies coming out in October, co-written with Penny Kittle. If you have loved all of Kelly's previous works, I know you're going to be floored by what him and penny have to say this time around thank you for joining us for another episode of the unapologist podcast join us next season when we'll talk with great people learn new ideas and tell the story of teaching as it happens this is Vito and chris signing off
Podcast.